Hello and welcome. You are listening to the Investor Lab, the auditory epicenter for passionate people seeking life of freedom, choice, and abundance. My name is Goose. My name is Gabby. And Gabby, what are we talking about today? We talked about cash flow. Woo! Cash flow. Awesome. Cash and more importantly, how to get it. Yes. Everyone wants it. Exactly. It's kind of like it's kind of like sex. <laughs> <laughs> Anyway, um, so exactly <laughs> <sorry>. like sex. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on from that. Um, so what we're talking about today is specifically how do you get from point A to point B? Because a lot of people get confused when they when they think about buying a property and maybe it's neutrally geared or maybe slightly negatively geared or maybe only slightly cash flow positive, and they're thinking, how the hell is this supposed to replace my income? So what we dig into today is how to think about um cash flow exponentially, how um where you start is not where you end, what cash what how cash flow changes over time, how to think about structuring your portfolio, how to think about achieving specifically your goals in your time, and how to think about the different phases in your portfolio and how that's going to contribute to your goals and all of that kind of stuff. So I think this is a really valuable episode, Gabby. What do you think? Yeah. So I think it's a, it's a really good episode. Like if you've ever thought, hmm, the cash flow from property doesn't sound that awesome. You know, I hear that it's a thousand bucks a year, which, you know, can be awesome, but is that really going to help me to replace my income or help me for my job or those kind of things? So if you've ever thought about that, this is the episode to listen to. If you thought about like, how do I think about actually generating cash flow from my portfolio and my like the mix of properties that I have, like we dig into that as well. So yeah, I think it's a really impactful episode. Awesome. All right, guys. Well, Without any further ado, let's get stuck into it. If you like this episode, make sure you like, rate, review, share, share it with a family member, friend, or loved one. Um, let's get stuck into it, Gabby. We'll mm -hmm. See you in the episode. See you guys. Hey, guys. Welcome back to the Investor Lab. You're with your pals, Goose and Gabby. Gabby, how are you? I'm awesome. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. Very well. Wonderful. I'm enjoying. I'm enjoying life. There's lots of good stuff going on. Um, as we record this, it is currently uh, in January 2022, and I'm really excited for for the year ahead. I think 2022 is going to be a good year. Um, what about you? Look, I tend to agree because we tend to um, think big and have lots of plans anyway. So yeah, it's going to shape up to be an awesome year. Yeah. Totally. Awesome. So speaking of shaping things up well for the future, talking about like <laughs> crafting an amazing future, what are we talking about today? Well, we um, we want to dive into cash flow, which is a really amazing, powerful, beneficial thing that people like from property, apparently. That's a thing. Um, but really it's about, you know, is it actually possible to generate enough cash flow from property to achieve your goals, to retire early, to replace your income, those kind of things. Because I think like we hear from a lot of people. So this has come directly from um, one of you guys have emailed in, Dennis. Hello, Dennis. Hi, Dennis. Um, and a lot of other people kind of requesting, you know, you, you hear about property and you see, okay, $1,000 net cash flow maybe, which from residential property is awesome. But it doesn't actually sound that impressive when your goal might be to replace your, you know, $100,000 income. So yeah. you can think really straightforward and go, okay, $1,000 per property, does that mean I'm going to need 100 properties? Is that realistic? Is that what I need to do? That doesn't sound that inspirational or possible. Mm. So is it actually possible to retire from cash flow from property? It's kind of what we're going to dig into. 
Yeah, 100%. It's a really great question, right? And uh, what we've got to remember is we talk about things like cash flow positive property and we talk about things like you know, $1,000 positive cash flow in the first year like it's normal. But we're also going to remember that that is not normal, right? So yeah. for the average property, the average property investor doesn't get past one property. In fact, like the, the biggest cohort of property investors have got zero properties because they're still trying to work out how to get started. The second biggest cohort is um, people who have bought one property and get stuck. That's about 71%, I think it is, um, that get stuck at one property. And then 19% get stuck at two and never get anywhere past it. And so that means that's why 90% of property investors never get past two properties, right? And so fundamentally, the reason for that is cash flow, right? So yes, yeah, you, look, as we've discussed before, property is one of those things that um, whilst every like whilst every asset goes through cycles and property prices go up and they go down over to you know in dear, generally speaking, property prices go up. So sort of on an ag on an aggregate, most property investors do get growth to some degree, some more than some and than others. But the thing that defines whether or not they can continue to build a prolific and profitable property portfolio is whether they get any cash flow. And so circling back to what the average punter does, well, the average yield on a on a property is somewhere between 2, 2.5 and 3.5% for most people, right? So when we're talking about getting things like you know, neutrally geared or even positively geared or positive cash flow uh, properties, that's actually the rarity, right? So we've sort of got to start there and go, okay, well, it's, it's actually not that easy. Um, but if you can even buy it, just even if you bought a property that that after all expenses, so property management, rates, water, maintenance, the whole shoot, sh whole shoot and match, even if you bought a property that covered all of its costs and just and made like a hundred bucks a year, right? You would be winning, like you would yeah. be so far ahead of the pack, right? You would be one of the the lucky few who has managed to buy a successful and a profitable property, uh, and that I think is something that we need to kind of bring back into the conversation as well. So totally, and I think even if you yeah, if you zoom back out and you think about that situation, like if you had a property that was completely net cash flow positive, even by a dollar, it means that it can sit there, pay for itself pay off its own debt, pay off everything, pay for its expenses, all of that, completely yep. net, and you don't have to worry about it. You know, you could lose your job tomorrow and that would still sit there. It would still pay for itself. It would still keep growing. You would still keep generating rent. Exactly, exactly. That's and that's a beautiful I, thing. So that's exactly, yeah. exactly. You can, you can go and travel the world and you can have wealth building on autopilot, right? If you bought, let's say you bought two or three or four properties and, and all they did was produce $1 of pure cash profit a year. And then let's just say you went and traveled the world for, for three or four years, just backpacking and whatever, and did nothing, just did nothing. You would come back wealthier than when you left and you wouldn't have had to even think about it or do anything about it because that you, you would have been building wealth on autopilot. That's the benefit. Okay. So now we've actually got to try and join the dots though. Like how do you get from that kind of a state where it's like, well, property is taking care of itself, which is good, good sign. How do you get from that to, I want the property to take care of me? So how do I get it to a point where my real estate portfolio can fund my lifestyle, right? That's fundamentally the question. Now, 99% of property investors want to invest in property because they ultimately want to create a reliable recurring revenue stream. That's that's totally. not 99%. Now, 1% of property investors probably, and I'm making these statistics up just to be clear, right? But like, <laughs> but, but like one, what probably 1% 1 of property investors are doing it for a pure 
wealth play, right? Where it's purely just intergenerational wealth. And the, and, and we've had clients like that where they're like literally like zero, they don't care at all about cash flow and they're cash buyers and they're just building up trust funds and stuff for that. Cool, great, but for the vast majority of people who want to invest in property, the whole idea is how do I use this as a vehicle to get me out of my current state? And the current state is typically spending too much time working, don't feel like I've got enough freedom, uh, don't feel like I'm living life on my own terms, want to get more out of life, want time to give back, want more time with the family. It's really about time, right? And so how do you get back time? Well, you need to be able to create a different way for money to come in. So you need to stop trading your time for money and you need to have assets that pay you. So then this starts to lead to the whole kind of financial freedom discussion and what is required to be financially free. Now, Again, I would say like the significant majority of property investors have the same or similar goal, right? So it all starts with financial freedom, but then usually it's somewhere around like, oh, how do I create $100,000 passive income? Interestingly, that figure doesn't seem to change <laughs> whether that that individual, let's say their current salary is 70 grand, you can say, what is the goal? And they'll say, oh, look, $100,000 uh, passive income in the next 10 years, uh, 10 properties in 10 years and $100,000 passive income. That's like this, like the the classic. And somebody could be, their starting point might be 70 grand a year income, but that'll still be the goal. Yep. Or they could be, they, their household, they might have two working two working adults in the household, both earning 120, right? So 240,000, and they'll still have the same goal. Oh yeah, $100,000 passive income, 10 properties, 10 years. All, always kind of the same. It's really interesting, right? So, but let's park the $100,000 piece um, just, for, just for a moment, right? Because- when we really simmer it down, chuck it on the stovetop, put it on low, let it simmer down and really look at what the constituent parts are that people are trying to achieve and it's time. So I like to think about this from, and we've discussed this before, uh, minimum viable life, right? So what would be required for you to start to experience some of that freedom that you desire? Now, it's an incremental scale, interestingly, right? Because where freedom might start Right. If you're working 50 hours a week and you feel like you you leave the house before the kids go to school or before the kids get up and you get home in time for dinner, maybe to put the kids to bed, and that's it. Look, if that's kind of like if you've kind of got that whole kind of thing going on where you're like you really don't feel like you actually have any time to engage or enjoy life, then incremental freedom starts with wouldn't it be great if I could take the kids to school and pick them up every day? Wouldn't that be awesome? Right. And so you can start to think, it's like, okay, well, what would be required for you to be able to achieve that? That's going to be a very different um, outcome to what do I need to be able to have my exact lifestyle right now without any changes and also not having to work a single second of any day. And I know I'm rambling a bit, Gabby, but I'm, but I'm into this topic. Right. So, but and so, so you, you can kind of go on an incremental scale and freedom, freedom comes in stages. Right. But fundamentally, you get to like the first real milestone is when you get to choose whether or not you want to work because you have your minimum viable life taken care of. So minimum viable life, what is that? Okay. Minimum viable life is 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 basically uh what is what are the minimum amount of costs to cover your basic needs? What like to for you to be able to get up and say, I'm just going to sit on the couch today and read a book and not have to worry about it. Now interestingly, that figure changes because 
if you've got two two parents or two adults working in the Sydney CBD and they live, you know, somewhere in the inner ring, so it's close to work and all of that kind of stuff. And the reason that they live there is because they work in the city and all, their cost of living is going to be way higher. And so you've got to consider, well, if I didn't have to go to that job, would I still maintain these level of expenses, right? That's That's a really big thing because... If you really think about it, if you could change your life and stop working, would you continue to live where you are, or would you potentially move somewhere else? Would you would you drop would you make a choice to drop your cost of living in order to achieve freedom faster? There's all these kind of dynamics uh, that that kind of go in go into play there. So understanding what that number looks like for you is going to be like there's going to be stages. There's like how do I buy back some of my time? What what adjustments can I make so that I could pull the plug and escape the rat race if I wanted? Then there's kind of like different levels. It's like, well, what would I need to be able to achieve to maintain the same standard of living now? Or what would be some degree of you know financial you know affluence coming from property? So there's all these kind of different stages. And I, I'll I'll stop and catch a breath and let you comment on everything I've just waffled on about. Have a drink of water, mate. Um, yeah, awesome. No, it's awesome. And I think you know we did an episode. I want to say two years ago, maybe a year ago, um, which was reverse engineering your um, financial freedom. I think that was the title. Yes. And, you know, as you said, the goal and defining what the goal is, you know, we talk about goal setting quite a bit, but defining what that goal is for you mm. and reversing that into like, what does that mean today? Like, what is the first step to achieving that goal? And you're right. Like the first step might be like, okay, instead of working my ass off, you know, 70 hours a week because I'm trading my time for money. Like how do I, what's the first step to reducing that to like a normal 40 hour week? Or mm. what does that mean? Like what do I need to achieve financially to be able to do that, to have a little bit more time to spend with the kids, my family, yep. to sit on the couch and read a book, that kind of thing. Um, and I think a trick with this as well though is, you know, if you set a, if you set a long enough time horizon you can fall in the trap of just thinking linearly. So I think the tr- trouble with some of this is, you know, let's just go back to that $100,000 income replacement target. You can take $100,000 in 10 years and then kind of reverse engineer that, cut that into 10 years and you get like, okay, this is how much income I need to accrue every single year. And you just see it as a straight line. Yeah, so in year one, I need to create $10,000 passive income. In year two, I need to create $20,000 passive yeah. income. And in year three, I need to create $30,000 passive income. Yeah, yep. Yeah, which is an awesome start, right? But you can imagine, firstly, the end position, the end of that trend line needs to be correct because every the whole plan depends on what that end, what the end goal is. Mm. Um, but it's also relatively, it's a good starting point because that's kind of your your average line like that's kind of like over the 10 years we want to sit around here but it's also not in reality how it really works like it's in reality this really works more an exponential kind of process where you know it might be relatively flat for a a few years but then it all picks up and compounding growth and Mm. rent increases and inflation and whatnot and everything it picks up exponentially and you get that more curved kind of chart and I think people really struggle to think about it in that way because they just think, well, you know, I'll take this piece of the pie and then I'll just cut it up into how many years and they're the pieces of the pie and that's just what I need to find. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And uh, you touched on a really great point because human beings inherently really, 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 really struggle to conceptualize uh, 
exponential exponential anything, right? Exponentiality is not a normal way for the human brain to think. The human brain is programmed to think linearly, right? And it's really interesting, right? Because Warren Buffett, for example, right, one of the richest people in the world, or you know, one of the you know one of the most successful investors, all of that kind of stuff. All he's done is compound continuously, right? And so he didn't start with loads of cash, you know, he started with a small amount of money, compounded over time, just kept at it. And interestingly as well, I was reading a, um, I was reading a book uh, a while ago um, called The One Thing, and it's written by a guy called Gary Keller with um, right. Jay Papasan. It's awesome, awesome book. Um, but in the, the st- Gary Keller, his story is quite interesting because he owns a real estate company called Keller Williams Real Estate. I think they're the largest real estate company in the world. And it's quite interesting because I, I, I can't remember how many billion dollars that business is worth, but I think it's like 40 billion or something like it's it's like it, it's it, whatever it is it is huge. Mm-hmm. And I remember reading the book at the time and I remember reading that he started the business in I think it was 1986 which was the year that I was born and then I now now the business is worth like 40 billion or, or whatever that number is don't quote me on that exactly. And I was like holy hell how do you do that? You know like how do you get from start he started the business with no money just one guy schlepping door to door, you know, like, and and he took it from that to let's say it's forty billion over the same period of my life. And I was thinking, hang hang on a second, how do you do that? And if you slice it up uh, incrementally, or if you so, yeah, if you slice it up in a linear fashion or an in- incremental fashion, it didn't really make any sense. But I reverse engineered it on a compounding basis and uh, and worked out, you know, he'd just grown the business by you know twenty to forty percent every year, but he'd done it and he'd started from basically no money and he just compounded over time and now it's worth, you know, billions and billions of dollars, right? And so the same kind of thinking applies whenever we're talking about anything to do with real estate, because we are looking at exponential growth, not just in the value of the properties, but also in things like rent and all of this kind of stuff. So breaking through that is really, really hard. And that's, I think, where people get stuck when they're thinking about property and when they're thinking about cash flow. Cool. Great. All right. So, Let's get tactical yep. about, you know, people really just want to know how how do I do it then? Like if it's not as straightforward as a straight line and a linear progress, mm. like how how can I earn enough income through property, through my own property portfolio to replace my income or or achieve my minimal viable life? Yeah. How do I actually do it? Well, it's a good question and it's really going to depend on your starting points, right? Mm-hmm. So uh, where you start, where you end and how long how long it's going to take you, so where you are now, where you want to be and the, and the time between is really going to be hugely dependent on the individual circumstances. If you're starting with $50,000 and $500,000 borrowing capacity and a savings rate of $1,000 a month, it's going to take you longer to achieve your goals than someone who is starting with $300,000 $3 million borrowing capacity and is saving $5,000 a month, right? In the former, it could take you 15 years or more. It's really hard to say, right? Um, for the latter, it could be five years, right? So it's really, really, really going to depend on um, where you start and also your risk tolerance along the way, right? But let's kind of maybe use some kind of specific examples to kind of explain how this kind of plays out because... For a lot of people, they might be thinking about buying a property that say three hundred and fifty thousand dollars. is a pretty kind of classic uh, entry price point. Now, fun and this comes sorry, just just to segue a little bit. Asset selection comes down to understanding what your portfolio needs, right? So, 
Um, at different stages in your portfolio, it will be important to prioritize things like growth. And in other stages in your portfolio, it will be important to prioritize things like cash flow. Okay. So where people go wrong is that they think, oh, I want cash flow now. So typically, so most people are capital or debt restricted, right? Most people don't have. Uh, an, an endless supply of available debt or an endless supply of available capital, which means they have restrictions around their their debt and and uh, their available debt and their available capital. More often than not, particularly in the early stages of someone's portfolio, they are more restricted on capital, so cash, cash deposits, all of that kind of stuff, than they are on available debt. Right. So. Where, where I see a lot of people go wrong is they go, I want cash flow. I want high yields. I'm just going to shoot from that from day, for that from day one. And in doing so, sometimes they end up compromising their ability to capitalize on growth, which might be actually what they need more of in their portfolio, right? So an example of that is, let's just say someone's got $50,000 deposit and they're going to buy a $250,000 house, right? They may choose to find the suburb that has the highest yield in Australia. And I don't know, maybe it's Mount Isa or I don't know, Broken Hill, who knows, right? Somewhere out in the middle of nowhere where they're going to get a really high yield, but they might not get the growth. And that's going to be great because they're going to get um, a decent amount of nominal or relative cash flow from that individual property. But the problem with that is that they're not actually thinking exponentially about their portfolio, and it's going to take them a really long time to be able to get enough capital to be able to move on to the next property. And ultimately, that's going to elongate the journey, right? So there's a couple of vectors that we need to think about here, and speed is one of them, right? Because the if you had a choice between buying one property every year for 10 years and end up with 10 properties in 10 years or 10 properties in year one and doing nothing for the next nine, right? The latter is going to give you a significantly greater return than the former. And that is because of the compounding, right? So you're going to get compounding growth in the, in the asset. You're also going to get compounding growth in the cash flow. So the sooner you can acquire properties or the more rapid you can go through an accumulation phase early on, the better off you're going to be. And that that holds true for everyone, okay? And this is a really important part of understanding how to get to goals because it's not incremental, right? If you have the ability to push yourself early on in your portfolio, and that could mean um, using higher LVRs, that could mean making greater sacrifices in your day-to-day living expenses so that you can contribute more to your portfolio. But the faster you can go earlier the better off you're going to be and the quicker you're going to get to your goals because it is because it is exponential and not incremental, right? And that's a huge thing that people have really got to understand, right? If you want to say something? Yeah, so general concept would be, general portfolio concept, build out your asset base, your foundation as early as you can because you're going to leverage compounding growth earlier that you can then further prioritise cash flow further down the line rather than starting off going I'm just going to get high yielders straight away yeah because you might get locked up and you won't get as much growth yeah it is exactly realistically the total returns in your portfolio come from a combination of cash flow and growth but the majority of it comes from growth right because yep. of because of the use of leverage and because of the the total asset value and all of that kind of stuff the total the the mac the, the greatest returns that you're going to get are going to be coming from growth but 
we also want to make sure that we're thinking about how to leverage that into cash flow at a certain point in the portfolio to make sure you don't get stuck, right? It's all about understanding the individual portfolio. So yes, typically in the first stage of your portfolio, it's probably more, probably depending on your circumstances, more important to focus on growth. And then the, in the second half of your portfolio, it's more important to focus on cash flow, right? But let's just start with some simple examples, right? So let's say you are starting with um, buying a $350,000 property, right? And let's just say that it is yielding at um, 6 I'll explain why I've chosen 6.3% specifically. And let's say it's on an 80% principal and interest loan on a 3% interest rate. Okay. So what we're saying here is you're putting in 20% deposit and it's going to be on principal and interest from day one on a 30-year loan term. And the reason we've chosen that is because they have, that's like a stock standard loan structure. And so it's the easiest way to imply what happens to cash flow over time, particularly over a 10-year period. Now, the reason I chose 6.3% yield is because all things being equal, right? That is going to roughly land you at about neutral, neutral, neutrally, um, neutral cash flow on a $350,000 asset. That's when you factor in things like um, loan repayments, plus property management, plus building and landlord insurance, plus council rates, plus maintenance, plus all of that kind of stuff, right? That's going to land you roughly at about 100 bucks a year positive cash flow, right? So we'll call that neutral. So if you were to look at buying a property and you're like, 100 bucks? 100 bucks? What? I'm going to have to buy, I'm going to have to buy a thousand of them in order to get to $100,000 cash flow. What the hell? That doesn't make any sense. And you're right, it doesn't make any sense until you take in the factor of uh, compounding growth because if you can assume a 5% rental growth rate. Now, just to give that a little bit of color, so typically um, the range that you would you would calculate rental growth rates is between 3 and 5%, right? Um, but if we look at the nearer uh, nearer term growth rates in rent, so if we talk about, look over the last, say, five years or so, it's been closer to five or higher. And in fact, even in the last sort of 24 months to 36 months, it's been way higher. And in fact, in some areas, it's been as high as 15 and tw- 15 to 20% growth in a, in a year, right? So we, in this example, we are using 5% average rental growth rate over a 10-year period. And we think that that given, given the reason that we are comfortable using that is because there's a national rental crisis. Like everywhere in the country, there is a rental crisis, right? So the demand for rentals is exceptionally high. And that's what's main, that's what's uh, giving us a pretty strong uh, compounding growth rate on rent. So using that example, $350,000 property that in year one is only producing $100,000 uh, $100 of cash flow in year 10, right? that's going to be producing about $9,879. Now, your repayments are going to stay the same. Your costs are going to go up sort of slightly over time, all of that kind of stuff. But when it all washes out, you're going to end up, you, that, that $100 a year is going to turn into you know, $9,000, $10,000 a year in cash flow over a 10-year period. Mm-hmm. So, so that is from purely the rental increase? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, exactly, right? So, and look, these are, estimates and forecasts, right? So yeah, maybe, I don't know, maybe you need to replace a roof in that time. You can maybe deduct that from the case. Look, there's a few other variables in there, but what we're trying to talk about is the linear compounding rate of cash flow, right? And so thinking about that, you know, it's pretty powerful because then you go, oh, hang on a second. I don't need a thousand of these properties that produce a hundred dollars. I need, I need 10 of these properties that produce $10,000, right? 
Now, again, if you could buy all 10 of them in year one, then by year 10, you would achieve your goal, right? Because, yep. but, but the likelihood of you being able to buy all 10 properties in year one is pretty low, right? And so then you need to start thinking about, and also you might not have the debt and the cap, you know, like your debt capital, all of that kind of stuff. So then you've got to think about like things like portfolio mix. So there are other types of assets that you might buy at, you know, the secondary stages of your portfolio. And so if we use a different example and we said, well, what would happen if you were to buy a $500,000 property that yielded at 7%. Okay. So we've gone from 6.3% yield to 7% yield. And we've got the same rental growth rate and we've got the same loan structure, 80% P&I, 3%, all of that good stuff. In year one, that property would produce about 4668 okay so we'll call that we'll call it 5 grand right so if you took the year 1 value then you would need to buy 20 of them in order to achieve your in order for you to achieve your um, $100,000 cash flow goal however this is where it gets really fun and interesting is that in this case if you bought a $500,000 property 5% rental growth rate per annum uh, you know all of the stuff that we've already laid out and said by year 10, that property would be producing about $20,000 of cash flow, right? So it's a huge difference, right? And so what there's a couple of things at play there. So there's relative cash flow, which changes as the price goes up. So you will get more free cash flow on a higher price property. But the downside is it's harder to get high yielding properties at higher price points, right? And so you've kind of got these, these trade-offs that you've got to make. And you know, crafting a portfolio is is kind of like cooking, right? You need to be able to season it in just the right ways at just the right time, add the ingredients in the right order in order to end up with the masterpiece dish that you want at the end, right? But even so, in this example, if you are able to buy five $500,000 properties yielding at 7% in year one, then by year 10, you would have your $100,000 cash flow goal, right? So that's we've reduced it from 1,000 properties down to um, 10 uh, down to 10 properties, down to five properties, right? And so that's where it starts to really make a big difference. And so all of this comes down to exponential thinking. I'm going to throw one example in here just to show you what can happen on, on the extreme end of things, right? So we've had a couple of our clients on the show before, Charlie and Bianca, uh, and one of the properties that they bought, I'm just using one of the properties that they bought, um, the purchase price is about 620,000, right? And in year one, the cash flow was round figures about 20 grand, and if we follow the same compounding rate, by year 10, that property is going to produce about $50,000 of cash flow, roughly. These are rough and general figures, right? And so, interestingly, Charlie reached out to me the other day and said, because of the properties they bought through us, they have actually achieved uh, FIRE, so financially independent retire early, and they've achieved their, their first benchmark goal, right? So now it's all, it's all bonus from there. And so understanding how these things compound over time is the key. Now, all of this has assumed um, that there's no leveraging and taking equity out and all of that kind of stuff is going to matter to your cash flow, right? And so it's really about understanding how do you mesh these things together? How, how much cash can you contribute to your portfolio? When are you going to leverage equity? What is that going to do for the cash flow? What loan products should you use? When and why? How should you support all this kind of stuff? Obviously, it's much easier to achieve your uh, cash flow target if you go interest only, but the limitation is you're not going to be able to go interest only forever. And I tell you, if we could go interest only forever, I'd probably pay a 2 to 3% interest premium just about to go interest only forever because I think it'd be the way to go. But you can't do that. So you've got to think about what, what is the finance strategy, what is the property strategy, and how you're going to get from a uh, point A to point B. And typically, what gets you out of Egypt won't get you to the promised land. And there's also 
some other thinking that needs to go in there as well because what you might do early on in your or early on in your portfolio is leverage much harder so you might you might want to try and go as fast as possible and dig out as much equity as you can out of your portfolio as you go and so that you can proliferate and go for scale because scale and speed is going to deliver you some some you know even greater exponential returns but at a certain point you might actually want to sell down some of those assets to to retire some of the debt to capitalize on any on 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 anything uh, any of the um the growth you've got on the table or any capital locked up in the asset and you might want to redistribute that capital amongst the, amongst the rest of your portfolio to lower the debt ratios and to increase the nominal cash flow so there's a few ways to go about it does that kind of give better optics on it yeah, it does. It's interesting the like the whole LVR piece, right? Because generally speaking, the lower the LVR on your whole portfolio, the better your cash flow should be. You know, yeah. if you've got a zero percent LVR, if you if you own all of your properties outright or one one property, whatever, your whole portfolio mm. you own outright, all of that cash that comes in from rent, obviously you pay expenses and whatever, but the net result you keep all of it. Like none of that goes to repaying debt. Mm-hmm. Um, the other end of the spectrum is if you know, you don't own any of it, all of you don't get any of the net cash flow, right? So um you yeah, generally speaking, the lower the LVR is, the better your cash flow would be. But like we were saying earlier, it comes into portfolio mix and strategy and timing for which assets you buy at which time and how you are financing those, you know, like mm-hmm. if you have these solid foundation assets early in your portfolio that you can actually leverage out another deposit for another property. Mm. Yes, in that first property, your cash flow is going to take a hit because you are increasing your loan amount. So your cash flow is your repayments are going to go up. So your cash flow is going to go down. But in moving that f- those funds into another asset and leveraging compounding growth and the growth in another asset you are going to you know as you said start to proliferate so that you can benefit from compounding growth and then be able to at a further stage leverage that and and convert it into better cash flow because at the initial stages it shouldn't necessarily be about cash flow like the goal is generally build up my asset base get you know chips on the table so that as compound and growth happens and growth happens in Australian real estate, like you are just basically the market is is delivering the growth for you. Yeah, 100%. It's kind of like baking bread, right? So like you, you in the early stages, you're combining all the ingredients and you're kneading it, you're pounding it, you're slapping it on the, de- on the bench and you're like doing all this kind of stuff to manipulate it, right? But then what happens, right, is you leave, leave it alone to rise, right? And you let yeah. it rise. And that's what happens, right? So your cash flow generally comes when you actually Proving. Yeah, exactly. You, your cash flow comes when you stop doing shit. <laughs> you know, like mm-hmm. like yeah. you know, I can't remember who said who said it, but in like um I don't know. Anyway, I'm I'm paraphrasing, but investing is supposed to be boring, and that's actually kind of thing. Like in the early stages, when you're building something, when you're building your portfolio, it's active. You're like, let's go, let's get as many properties, and it's like it's quite active. And then do nothing, right? And understanding your timelines and timeframes is really, really critical to this as well, right? Because let's just say um, you're going to spend the first thirty percent of your portfolio. Uh, let, let's say you've whatever time, whatever time window you choose, right? Let's say you want to achieve your financial target in um, in ten years, right? Then 
and I'm just making these ratios up, but they probably hold fairly true. Let's say the first 30% of that window needs to be rapid accumulation. How many properties can you buy in that period? Well, you've got three years, right? So then that's, and then if you want to let it rest, so you're going to let it rest for two thirds and you're going to, you're going to accumulate for one third, right? So that means you've got three years to smash as many properties as you can, get them into your portfolio and then just like, let it prove, let it rise, just let it rest and let it breathe and right. And let the, just let the sunshine in. Vice versa, if you've got a 20-year timeline, right, then you've got six years, right, to, to do the same thing. And so the question then is, would you buy the same amount of properties over a six-year period or would you buy more properties over a longer window and then elongate the returns because you're actually going to get greater returns? And that's, I think, a really fun game to play because re- the reality for most people is that um, 10 years is actually not very very long, right? Particularly when you pass 30, as I've realized, because I still think that I'm 30, but apparently I'm nearly 36, right? And so time really changes. And it's like, oh, okay, so 10 years really isn't that long at all. Now, if you could just shift your thinking a little bit, and, and look, you know, we're all about helping people to achieve their goals faster. We can, you know, the fastest we've been able to do is like 18 months or something like that, right? Which is awesome. Um, and so you can do it quickly, but also if you play a different game, right, and just play a little longer and play for total returns or play for a bigger pie over time, then you're actually going to set yourself up for not just meeting your needs, but also exceeding your needs over time. Um, so, I, yeah, I think there's a couple of understanding the game you're playing and why is a really, really key part in making this work. Totally, yeah. And I love that. I love that proving concept, right, because... I mean, we obviously help our clients a lot with that accumulation phase, right? We're here to yeah. help you guys develop these plans, think strategically about your asset selection, your portfolio plan, and then help you to execute on them. Mm. Um, and so we have a lot of clients that, you know, buy, you know, two, three, four in the time that they're with us. And then I actually, as much as I love our clients, I also love when we stop hearing from them and then we hear from them, you know, a year later, they're like, hey, my portfolio is doing awesome and I've barely bloody touched anything. I'm like, hmm. yes, awesome. That's yeah, great. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's that's what you want. You need that. You know, it can be, I think we tend to forget as well, like most people, firstly, most people never buy an investment property, right? Hmm. Full stop. Let alone, you know, the quantity of investment properties that we tend to talk about that has become, you know, normal, normal for us now. Um, and so, but it is quite a, a lot of work, you know, if you think about doing that in a short amount of time, you know, you kind of need to saddle up for like, okay, this is my accumulation phase. I'm going to build up my foundation. I'm going to buy some properties in, you know, a two year window or whatever. Yeah. But understanding that, you know, this is kind of like a sprint, like I'm going to like, it's going to be some work. I'm going to need to save cash. I need to do a lot of paperwork, all this kind of stuff for a two-year period, but then after that, you know, letting it prove and it's mm. going to, you know, rents are going to keep increasing. If you keep just increasing the rent 5% a year, you're going to keep incrementally increasing that your net cash flow over the time for each of your properties. And then at the end, you will have like a significant cash flow result by the end of whatever your timeline is. Absolutely. So, yeah, I like that that accumulation phase piece. Yeah, totally. hundred percent. And look, also just circling back to what you're talking about earlier about LVRs, right? Mm. So a, a really, an, if it's very hard, as we mentioned, for people to think exponentially. And so sometimes it's really useful to have some kind of simplified heuristics, right? And so one of the easiest ways to think about um, 
how to achieve your cash flow goals, right, is to think that if you if you wanted to have $100,000 of net cash flow, what you would need to be aiming for is a 5% net cash flow return on $2 million of equity, right? Pretty simple. Okay. And so if you've got, you know, if you've got, um, you know, a $10 million portfolio and you've got uh, 80% LVR on it, right? That that would mean that you've got 20% in equity, which would be about $2 million of equity. And and if you had 5% net cash flow on that, then that would give you about $100,000 cash flow, right? So yeah, that's the kind of easiest, easiest um, mental model uh, to use in order to kind of think about where to get to. Now, how you play that game is going to be different, right? So because because what tends to happen is, um, you know, as property prices go up, your LVR tends to go down and your cash flow is also going to go up. And so that can actually be wholly more achievable than you think uh, over a much shorter period of time. I'm just circling back to actually well, I was talking to another one of our clients recently who's who's done quite well and has been quite successful. Um, they started um, buying at 80% LVR. Um, and they were just gobsmacked because their current portfolio is um, they haven't done anything, right? They've done nothing. And their current and in two years, their portfolio LVR is now like 49% LVR. Right. <laughs> and so and so they're just like, what the hell? Like, what the hell is going on here? What are we doing with all of this? Yeah. Um, so understanding that these things do change dynamically over time is the best way to think about it. But where you start is not where you end. What gets you out of Egypt won't get you to the promised land, right? And so it's very important to think like that. Cool. cool. Awesome. Do you think this has helped, Gabby? Yes, I do. Awesome. All right, guys. Um, if this has been beneficial to you, let us know. And uh, as we mentioned at the start of the episode, this came from a suggestion from one of our listeners. So if you've got any suggestions, any questions, any thoughts, uh, any topics you'd like us to cover, shoot us an email to hello at dashdot.com.au. We look forward to hearing you and we'll see you on the next episode. Thanks, guys. Bye.